0: Welcome to The Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health, and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 14 of the Well-Nutured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And in today's episode, we are going to do something a little different. So instead of interviewing a guest or going into the research, doing a deep nerdy dive into something, we're going to talk about how the environment is influencing our brain health, and we're going to use the example of Parkinson's disease to illustrate this. I know it's not the only example in how the environment is affecting our brain health, but the Parkinson's community and the people that research it are on the forefront of understanding this. And this is one that we understand pretty well now. We know and can make a pretty strong case that what we do to the environment has an effect on ourselves and on our brains, and what we have done to our environment has contributed to a global pandemic of Parkinson's disease. For human health, and particularly for human neurological and mental health purposes, I think that's really important that we start to recognize that what we do to the earth, the chemicals that we put out there, do affect not only the animals that live in the environment, but affect us humans as well. So today I'm going to talk about what Parkinson's research is showing us in terms of this intersection between health and the environment, and particularly the health of the human brain living in that human that's living in the environment. And I do hope to convince you with this that we need to rethink certain chemicals We maybe need to rethink our personal exposure to certain chemicals. We need to rethink how we use them, maybe in our own lives, but also in industry. We need to rethink how these things are on a larger scale, how they're regulated, how they're approved. We wanna understand and think about, well, what is an acceptable risk? And I think one of the things that science gives us is the knowledge to do better. If we know better, then we can do better. And this is one of those cases where we we know better. So we could probably do better. This is an area I'm personally really passionate about because I work with a lot of Parkinson's patients. I would say about 30 to 40 percent of my patient base at any time are people with Parkinson's. And because of this passion that I have, I regularly attend conferences for movement disorders and most recently had the immense privilege to attend the World Parkinson's Congress in Barcelona that was just occurring in July. This is my favorite conference. Maybe you're not supposed to have favorite conferences, but I do. And it's truly amazing because it brings together the experts in Parkinson's worldwide, most notably the greatest experts in Parkinson's, which are the people with Parkinson's. So tons of patients come. And When you have a conference full of patients asking important questions and all the researchers and clinicians and focus groups and care providers all in the same room, you get some really interesting outcomes. So I I walk away with lots of ideas. I walk away with a lot of aha moments. And this year, I had an aha moment that... You know, I've had maybe in other ways before, but it really stood out to me this time. And in part, it's because the messenger is one of the most brilliant people on this earth, Dr. Bastian Bloom. He is a movement disorders doctor from the Netherlands, and he does incredible research and communication in the world of care for Parkinson's patients. And he's very, very patient-centered in his approach to care very open-minded in his approach to care, and he's just involved in some of the most beautiful initiatives that are out there in the Parkinson's world. And people love him; um, they love him. I'm not the only person who has a nerd crush on Dr. Bastian Bloom. He made a comment during this session that just rung around in my head for hours. He said something to this effect: "We now have three studies globally that show that continued pesticide and pollutant exposure in people with Parkinson's is correlated with increased." mortality in those people. And I made a note. I just, I, I made a note. I highlighted it in pink. I said, go back to this. This seems really important. And I, on my way home from the conference, I had some Wi-Fi access and I just quickly went on PubMed and looked it up. And he's right. Of course he's right. There's one in the Netherlands. There's one in California. And there's one in Brazil. So in, on three different continents, they found the same thing. They found that folks that are continually exposed to pesticides who have Parkinson's die earlier than people who don't have that exposure. Now, Dr. Bloom was speaking to a room full of people who already understand some other important factors or important facts that are really well established now around pesticides specifically and pollutants with Parkinson's. So it's really well established that about only 10% of Parkinson's disease cases are explained by genetics, and the other 90%, the vast majority, are explained by collusion of factors. So these are things that are protective factors and also risk factors. So there are a few interesting protective factors, like fun little side note, caffeine actually reduces people's risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And green tea, specifically, three cups a day of green tea has been correlated with a seven year delay in onset. So, interesting little factoid. But coffee's also been found to be beneficial for reducing your risk of developing Parkinson's. And then smoking, oddly enough, reduces the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. It's probably the only protective thing I've ever read about smoking. Please don't start smoking because you need to prevent Parkinson's disease. You're way more likely to get lung cancer and die. So, when We look at this collusion of factors, it's things like age, genetics, diet, exercise, exposure to pesticides, exposure to heavy metals, and other pollutants like trichloroethylene. We know this because there's been enough research in enough different parts of the world to say, yes, if you have exposure, if you have occupational exposure to pesticides, to these chemicals, it confers a 1.64 times increased risk in developing Parkinson's disease that's a 64% increased risk in developing Parkinson's disease than the folks that don't have those exposures. And we also know more than that. We know that folks with exposure to these chemicals get Parkinson's disease earlier in their lives than people without that exposure. They progress faster than the people without that exposure. We also know that continued exposure to pesticides speeds up the rate of progression to more severe disease. And finally, we now know that you also die earlier. Your risk is complete in a sense. You get it earlier, your symptoms are more severe, you progress faster, and you die earlier with continued pesticide exposure. And what Dr. Bloom was trying to drive home was that it was really important for the patients in the room to hear this, because what that means is that if you have continued exposure As a person with Parkinson's to pesticides occupationally, you are actually at risk for faster progression, a shortened lifespan, basically. Your risk of mortality is higher. So back when Parkinson's was first recognized, which was about 200 years ago in London, England, by a man, which will no surprise to you be named Dr. James Parkinson because that's how we roll, he was around in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in London, and it was extremely, extremely polluted in London at that time. So there were famous fogs that were not fogs coming in from the Thames. It wasn't fogs coming in from the ocean or anything like that. It was pollution fog that was happening on the regular 200 years ago in London. And James Parkinson, Dr. Parkinson, was the first person to describe what became a growing phenomena. And that was these folks who had a combination of these four things, which was a tremor, which would be start as a resting tremor, but a tremor, shuffling gait, balance problems, and rigidity. So essentially, he was the first to describe that during the Industrial Revolution. And it is presumed through research and reviewing of medical literature that these symptoms were actually pretty rare pre industrial revolution. Fast forward to 2020 and really the beginning of the pandemic, a book comes out by Drs. Ray Dorsey, Todd Shear, Michael Okun, and Dr. Bastion Bloom called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. And this book is available on Amazon, it's available at your local bookstore, and it's a really well written argument for why we need to look at what we're doing to the environment because we are contributing to harm for these humans that are getting Parkinson's disease, the idiopathic Parkinson's disease that's 90% of what is out there. So this book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, when it first came out, I immediately pur- I purchased it right away. There was an argument that they made in the book that at the time living through an infectious pandemic really stood out for me. And this was this argument that the Parkinson's disease satisfies many of the criteria of a pandemic. So to go through it really quickly, a pandemic is characterized by things like geographical extension, so being in existence in a growing areas throughout the world. Disease movement, so a spreading around the world. Explosive rates, so growing fast and in an exponential way minimal rates of immunity, meaning that populations are at risk because they don't have adequate defenses, novelty, infectious or contagious, and severity. And so their arguments were that it met the criteria for geographic extension because Parkinson's affects people throughout the world, that it meets the criteria of disease movement because the disease is spreading around the globe as populations age and countries industrialize. It met the criteria of explosive rates because Parkinson's disease is the fastest growing neurological disorder on the planet, and its rates are increasing in almost every part of the world. Um, And a great example of this is China. China has some of the most rapid increased rates of Parkinson's in the entire world. And it is correlated with also a massive increase in the use of pesticides, industrial solvents, and worsening air quality in that country. It also met the criteria, the pandemic criteria, of minimal rates of immunity in the sense that it affects all folks from all walks of life, male, female, it can develop in younger people, and basically all races and backgrounds. It met the criteria for novelty because it was clearly identified only 200 years ago, and it has become more and more common since then, where it was a rare condition before then. And it's not known to meet the criteria of infectious or contagious disease in the way in which we would generally think of that, which is one individual passing it to another. But if we look inside the individual, the pathology does spread within humans from nerve cell to nerve cell. That's maybe the one place they stretched a little bit to meet the criteria. But I'm going to forgive them 100%, especially because Bastion Bloom's involved with this. And then the severity it does meet the characteristic of severity. It's a debilitating condition, and it ranks as one of the most devastating neurological disorders you can get. So these criteria, which I'm taking right out of the book, um, and this argument, reading this when we were just starting to be in the midst of a global pandemic, really, really got me thinking at the time about how, well, one pandemic that gets a lot of attention is, of course, an infectious pandemic that's killing people in large amounts and in fairly quick succession. And rightfully so, right? We 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 have to pay attention to that. That would be silly to just ignore that. But we do have this other thing happening in the background. And I know there's other diseases like this that probably also correlate to increasing pollution and global warming in the world. The Parkinson's disease is really tightly linked to this increased amount of industrialization. As countries industrialize and increase the pollution that their populations are exposed to, we do see this increase in production of Parkinson's disease in the population as well. So what are some of the more common players in the pesticide slash herbicide slash pollution world that appear to be playing the biggest role in Parkinson's disease, the development of Parkinson's disease, possibly, and the worsening of it, and death from Parkinson's disease. One of the big ones is paraquat. Paraquat is a herbicide that's been pretty strongly linked to increased risk of the development of Parkinson's disease, and it's really considered a highly toxic pesticide. It has already been banned in at least 32 countries, but it is still used in the United States. And at the time of publishing of the book that I'm mentioning, they state that in the last decade, the use of Paraquat in the United States had actually doubled. What does it do? Well, Paraquat appears to preferentially damage the dopaminergic neurons in the nervous system. Now, for folks who maybe are not aware, one of the hallmarks of organic change that happened in people who have Parkinson's is this loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. It's a specific area of the brain. And this area of the brain is involved in organizing movement, initiating movement, controlling movement, and dopamine plays a really big role in that area but as we all know, dopamine's become this very popular neurotransmitter. So people know dopamine for other things, too. And trust me, anything that you know of that dopamine does is affected in Parkinson's disease. So, for instance, people with Parkinson's disease have low motivation. Well, and that's largely because motivation comes a lot from dopamine. Dopamine plays a huge role in mood. It plays a huge role in our ability to enjoy the world around us. And so folks can get depressed and have a lot of challenges psychologically related to just the loss of dopaminergic neurons. But that is the hallmark. And so all of those four things, the rigidity, the balance problems, the tremor, and the shuffling gait all of that is due to the changes that are happening in the dopaminergic system. There's a lot more than the dopaminergic system that's getting affected in Parkinson's disease, and we can have a huge discussion about how norepinephrine system is getting affected and the serotonergic system is being affected, and that, that also helps to explain many of the other problems that are going on in these patients and these folks. But we know that paraquat itself and its mode of action in a human body is this preferential damage to dopaminergic neurons. So we have this pesticide, a pesticide that's been growing in use in the United States, and it has a known mode of action that makes sense for why it would be associated with a disease like Parkinson's, if it's damaging dopaminergic neurons. And then there's been these epidemiological studies that have closely linked exposure to Paraquat with significant increased risk of developing Parkinson's. Another problematic chemical is rotenone, as well as many of the organochlorines and organophosphates. There's another important chemical in the world that is really common, and it's called trichloroethylene. And it is also associated with this increased risk of Parkinson's. And trichloroethylene is used in a lot of different industries. It's used for degreasing In industrial work, I had a lovely patient who developed a different movement disorder, but one of the things that in his intake we were looking for, what was going on, what could have been some exposures that could explain his uh, neurological condition. And he's a mechanic, and they used to use a lot of trichloroethylene. I don't know if they still do now, but back in the day, he would use a lot of trichloroethylene to degrease motors that he was working on. Dry cleaners use it for spot cleaning, and there's lots of safer alternatives so that it doesn't have to be used anymore by industries for these purposes, yet it is still being used. So this is something that you might be being exposed to in your job or could be still being exposed to through things like dry cleaning. And there is a movement in the United States to try to get this banned there's a movement to try to get a lot of these pesticides banned and i think they're struggling it's hard to i think to win against an industry that has a lot of money and this industry has a lot of money so what can you as an individual do it's a pretty depressing concept that things that we do to produce especially things that we do to produce food end up being things like to produce more food for more people end up being things that are creating health problems in more and more people, or not creating necessarily, but contributing to the production of these health problems. And I think there's a few things that folks can do about this if they're feeling pretty blue about the fact that there's a strong correlation between environmental toxins and a neurological condition that's growing faster than any other neurological condition on the planet. I know getting involved with politics might be helpful and and I certainly encourage you to do that, but I'm going to speak more to what could you be doing to try to to manage your own personal risks, because that's a place where you have some really discrete control. And then if you have the financial ability to support causes that are out there, please do. (laughs) We can figure out ways to, to do less harm to our brains by doing less harm to the environment. But you can purchase this book, A Prescription for Action Ending Parkinson's Disease, and they have a whole bunch of ideas of what you can do in terms of lobbying, especially if you live in the United States, lobbying your elected officials to make a difference. In Canada, there are organizations like the David Suzuki Society and others that are working towards reducing the use of these harmful agents. They're harmful to us, but they're harmful to the environment too, and they're creating lots of other problems that... In the end, we're all interconnected. It comes back to us. But what can you do as a person out there who maybe you realize that you've got some family members who either have Parkinson's and you're concerned about your own risk or you want to inform these folks with Parkinson's that they need to keep their exposures to pesticides lower because that does help reduce their risk of progression Well, one of the things that you can do is you can download the Environmental Working Group app, which is called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean Fifteen. I love this app because what it does is it gives you real-time, up-to-date, research-driven, data-driven information about what currently are what they call the Dirty Dozen and the Clean Fifteen. So while I was speaking here, I just opened up the app to give you a quick and dirty on the dirty dozen. So what the dirty dozen means is that the Environmental Working Group has sampled these fruits and vegetables and determined that they are the highest in pesticides and pesticide residues, and that the advisement generally is that these foods are foods that maybe you're better off buying organic. Often they're the same usual suspects show up here, but strawberries, I'm sad to tell you, is number one, especially in the summertime. I'm sorry to tell you that buy organic spinach nectarines apples peaches pears cherries grapes celery celery is always on this list tomatoes sweet bell pepper and potatoes those right now are what the environmental working group is advising that you buy organic to limit your exposure to pesticides they also have a little uh, dirty dozen plus that hot peppers are also probably a risk And then they have the Clean 15. And the Clean 15 are the foods that are testing really low. And I love this part because this means you can look at what's testing high, what's testing low, where can I save a bit of money and still eat lots of fruits and veggies? Because as we know, fruits and veggies, brain food. So the Clean 15 right now on the app, the first one is uh, corn, sweet corn. I'm happy to tell you that. I'm really happy to tell you that in July. That's a good one. Avocados. So many millennials are just happy right now. Uh, Pineapple. Cabbage. Onions. Sweet peas that are frozen. Papayas. Asparagus. Mangoes. Eggplant. Honeydew melon. Kiwi. Cantaloupe. Cauliflower. And grapefruit. Don't take my word for it. It's updated on the regular. And... It is a free app, completely free from the environmental working group, and it is one of the ways in which you can take an active step towards reducing your exposure. Another thing that's really obvious is to reduce the use of any kind of pesticide that you use inside or outside your house in your garden. So that could be taking Roundup out of your life, that might be being really careful about what you use to try to fight the bugs and and pests inside your house and try to use natural agents as much as possible. And there's a growing list of things that people are using, including bugs that kill other bugs, to address indoor pests. And as much as possible, if you can afford to, choose the organic product anyways. Now, the Clean 15 are the ones that On the whole, we're looking at things that even if you buy the conventional, there's very low residues of pesticides and herbicides in that produce. But another way that you can, if you have the ability, the more that you purchase as organic in terms of foods that you consume, the less you are exposed. There's been some interesting citizen science around this, where people have checked their blood levels for various pollutants which you can do, and I don't think it's necessary to do this, but if you wanted to do this experiment, you could, and then gone and eaten organic for three months and then retested and seen their levels go down. So that does happen. If you reduce your wholesale exposure to pesticides and herbicides, your levels are going to come down, and you are reducing the risk that these things play a role in your ongoing neurological health. It's not a guarantee. There's no guarantees in life. But I think it's an interesting, important place that we don't think about a lot, in our day-to-day lives, especially when we think about brain health, I think it often gets missed that brain health is intimately linked to the health of the environment around us, intimately linked. One final pitch I'll make for buying organic is that you vote with your dollars. So when you buy organic and you vote with your dollars, you're telling farmers and industry that this really matters to you. I also know that this will not be a reality for a chunk of folks because it is a lot more expensive to eat organic everything. It just is. But if you have the means to do so, you can speak loudly for all of us. You can make a difference that way. Now, if you are concerned for a loved one with Parkinson's, one thing that I would advise is that you not show up and just say, you've got to stop eating anything but organic food, because that's not actually what the research shows. What the research shows is that folks that try their best do better. So if you are concerned for a loved one with Parkinson's, I think the productive way to approach this is to think about Dr. Mishley's research. She's a researcher at the University of Washington, University of Bastyr, and she is researching and has a cohort that she's following forward in time, uh, looking at the intersection between diet and exercise and other lifestyle factors like social exposures and progression rates in Parkinson's patients. And they do find a correlation with organic eating, but it's based around a specific question. So they do find that people who answer yes to this question progress slower in their Parkinson's disease. The question is, I try to eat organic when possible. And the folks that answer yes to this there is a correlation to slower progression and we know now kind of why right we know that they are probably reducing their exposure somewhat to pesticides and herbicides but that question is not saying and what people are not affirming when they say yes to that is that they eat everything organic and i want to emphasize that because i think right now that is a practically impossible thing to do for most of us financially And even just ease of life, I think it's a practical, impossible, impossibility to actually perform that feat right now. And I'm sad to say that because it means that we become really reliant on all of these pesticides, herbicides and other toxins to live as humans in this world. And I think the larger problem is we need to figure out how to live in this world and feed everybody without so much of these things. And that is not a problem for you or I to solve in this podcast at all. <laughs> so those are some individual actions that you can take and ways in which you can try to limit your own personal exposure and hopefully limit the effects that pesticides are having and herbicides and other chemicals have in your life. One final item of note. So there are people in this world now that can provide cleaning for your clothes that is similar to dry cleaning but without the chemicals. They use extracts from from plants we have one in victoria called the wet cleaner they do the same job as a dry cleaner and the same outcomes but they don't use the chemicals there's no trichloroethylene being used as a spot cleaner for instance in their processes so that's another way that you could limit some of your exposure but also just buying clothes that don't need to be dry cleaned is another way so thank you so much for listening to this i hope this gave you some food for thought and some ideas around how you might take better care of your brain from the perspective of pesticides. Folks out there with Parkinsons, I hope this gives you some inspiration to really limit exposures to pesticides if you can. If you can or find ways to improve your protective equipment so that you're not as exposed as maybe you were before. We have lots of really cool stuff coming down the pipeline at the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm really interested in what you folks want to hear about, so please email us your questions at thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com that's thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com until next time i hope you have a great couple of weeks and please remember be kind to your mind thank you for listening to this episode of the well nurtured brain if you enjoyed this episode remember to subscribe and share this podcast spread the word about brain health to your friends and family, they'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.